You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. It's a long way to Tipperary. It's a long way to go. It's a long way to Tipperary. To the sweetest girl I know. Hello everyone and welcome to History of the Great War Premium episode number 43. The First World War would see countries involved in the fighting strain themselves like never before. And for the British, that meant taking advantage of their vast colonial empire to the greatest amount possible. A key part of that empire was the British possessions in India. Over the course of the war, over one million men from India would join in the fighting, all on the side of the British Empire. They would fight on the Western Front, at Gallipoli, in East Africa, in Egypt, the Levant, and Mesopotamia. Their contribution, both in terms of combatants and non-combatants, as well as in materiel, would play a critical role in the British victory. For their efforts, 11 Indians would win the Victoria Cross, the highest British military honor. However, both at the time and after, Indian troops would have to contend with deep-seated racism that both negatively impacted their treatment during the war, but also caused many to minimize their accounts of their contributions during and after the war. Many myths would be created by those who sought to reduce the acclaim that the Indians received for their actions, myths that persist until today. During this episode, we will discuss some of those myths, as well as discussing the contributions of the Indian forces all over the world. This will not be a full story of those actions, with many of the wider stories having already been discussed on the podcast. However, during this episode, we will at least discuss the actions in overview and some of the contributions of the Indian troops in those actions. We will also spend some time on some less well-covered topics like India before the war, the recruitment practices of the British in India, and the turmoil that some of those recruitment practices created. First, we have to talk about geography. There are two important things to consider when discussing British India during the First World War. The first is that India as a whole was much larger than it is today, containing at least part of 10 different countries that are on the modern-day world map. The country was also very regionally distinctive, with various areas like Punjab or Bengal or Bombay being very different in terms of the people that lived there and those people's relationships with the British. 
This meant that many of the soldiers may not have identified with a unified Indian society during the war, but instead with their own regional groups. Within those regional groups, the Indian troops of the British Army in India and the support of the local elites were critical to the British keeping control of India. These local elites were able to keep support for the British at a reasonable level, which meant that the use of violence to maintain support was a somewhat rare occurrence. That did not mean that the British were not prepared for violence, though, and that preparation revolved around keeping a large garrison of both British and Indian troops in India at all times. Before the war, the army was seen by many Indians as a gateway to a professional career and an educational system. The average sepoy was not paid enough to be considered rich, but they were paid enough to maintain a family. Men who served for long periods were also provided with other incentives, like a pension, which would be paid out to family members if the sepoy was killed. In other areas, farmland was provided to the men when they retired. The British would take advantage of the regional nature of Indian society and would encourage units to recruit from their same areas. This meant that some units would contain several family members and friends, adding a layer of honor onto the soldier's service. While most of the troops in the Indian army would always be stationed in India, detachments would be sent overseas at times. Before the First World War, Indian troops would see service in both Africa and China, and during these operations they would partake in both population pacification as well as fighting against roughly equivalent formations. In both of these roles, they would acquit themselves quite well. The total number of soldiers who participated in these expeditions was in the thousands, and while these men served in many different theaters, they would never serve in large numbers in Europe. This was due to two different manifestations of British racism. The first was that it was believed that the Indian troops were inferior to the European troops and would not stand a chance on a European battlefield. The second was that if they did end up doing well, it would erode the feeling of British superiority that the British did all that they possibly could do to maintain in India. The First World War would see these concerns overridden due to the need for troops. There were other downsides to service within the Indian Army, at least for Indians, most of which related to the fact that Indian troops were seen as inferior to the British soldiers that they were serving alongside. They would never be given the same promotional opportunities, and there was a ceiling on how far any Indian could be promoted. All of the highest positions within the regiments were held by British officers, and Indian officers, even those of similar rank, were expected to be fully subordinate to the other British officers. Initiative was not in any way encouraged among the Indian officers or men, and when they were called upon to lead units early in the First World War, it was shown that this negatively affected their ability to lead if the British officers were killed or wounded. This deficiency would be well cited by critics of the Indians, but I'm not sure I can blame the Indian troops themselves. They had never been given a chance to exercise actual independent command, and when they were put in that position, they did not perform well, just like so many European soldiers who were put in similar positions during the war. British racism did not just affect the conduct of the officers and men after they were in the army, it even altered who was brought into the army in the first place. This was due to the British adherence to something called the martial race theory. This theory stated that only some of the Indians, based on where they were from, were suitable for military service. The regions that were seen to produce soldiers were from the Punjab, the northwest frontier, and the areas just south of the Himalayas. It was felt that men from these areas were more suitable for military service due to their overall lack of education, with many of these areas being heavily that they heavily recruited from being the least educated in India, and it was also due to some perceived genetic traits. 
those from southern India were thought to be far too soft and weak to make good soldiers. This meant that the makeup of the Indian army was not in any way representative of the Indian population as a whole. The martial race theory would mean that some areas of India would bear the brunt of the fighting during the First World War, with areas like the Punjab providing most of the soldiers for the army. Even after it was clear that the Indian army would have to massively expand, the British would still adhere to the martial race theory, and so the people in those areas were called upon for greater and greater efforts. The order to begin mobilization for war arrived in India on August 8, 1914, three days after war was declared in Europe. At that moment, there were 155,000 officers and men in the Indian army, and almost immediately, two divisions and a cavalry brigade were ordered to prepare to depart for Europe. To do this, they had to gather all of the men for their divisions together, even though they were widely spread out due to summer leave being given to almost a third of the men at this point. Even with this added difficulty, it would take just a few weeks for the first convoys of troops to be on their way to Europe, with the first one arriving in port in August 22nd. The immediate response of the Indian troops and their rapid transport was seen as critical in London. The quick shipping of these troops allowed those in London to announce that the troops of the Indian army were on their way, an announcement that helped counteract the more worrying news that was arriving in London about the early defeats that the BEF was experiencing on the Western Front. The Indian and British troops from India would arrive in Marseille in the south of France on September 26th. They would be moved north rapidly and would be behind the British front in Flanders by mid-August. While some of the troops from India were already on their way to Europe, back in India, recruitment efforts were instantly thrown into high gear. Over the first nine months of the war, almost 70,000 Indians would volunteer for service, and during the same period, more than 80,000 total troops would be sent out of India for service all over the world. This was just the beginning of sending troops to Europe, and it very quickly caused problems for the recruitment structures, which had been created to keep up with the more steady pace of pre-war actions. Before the war, each Indian regiment had generally needed to round up about 75 men per year to make up for general age and health-related attrition. However, after the first few weeks of the war, those numbers changed from 75 per year to over 100 per month. By 1918, these adjustments would allow the Indian forces to expand to a total of 1.4 million men, but during this expansion they also stayed confined to specific areas of the country due to the martial race theory. One of these areas was the Punjab. Punjab was a critical recruiting ground for the army before and during the war, and during the first months of the war almost half of all the soldiers recruited by the army and also about half of the men who were sent overseas were from Punjab. Over the course of the war, this ratio would continue, requiring a huge intensification of recruitment efforts in the province. At first, a simple expansion of pre-war efforts was enough, but soon extra incentives had to be used to find more men to be brought into the units. Pay was raised by 25% for any soldier that was posted overseas. In January 1917, food was provided to all recruits from the moment of enlistment, where previously they had, pay had to pay for their own food when not on active duty. In mid-1917, 50 rupees were given to every recruit. Then in 1918, an additional 4 rupees per month were given to all soldiers on overseas duty. These escalating incentives were required, not just due to the number of men that were available and were needed, but also due to the stories that began to arrive from the front almost as soon as Indian troops joined the fighting. Some of these accounts were positive, but many were also negative. Here is one example of one of those negative letters, written by an Indian Muslim soldier from Punjab. 
He would use the term Havildar in his letter here, which is a rank in the Indian army roughly equivalent to that of a sergeant. He would say, quote, For God's sakes, don't come, don't come, don't come to this war in Europe. Write and tell me if you and your regiment are coming or not. I am in a state of great anxiety, and tell my brother, for God's sakes, not to enlist. If you have any relatives, my advice is to not let them enlist. I write so much to you because I am a pay Havildar and read the letters to the double company commander. Otherwise, there is a strict order on writing on such a subject. Cannons, machine guns, and bombs are going day and night, just like the rains on the month of Sarwan, which is July to August. Those who have escaped so far are like the few grains cooked in the pot. That is the case with us. In my company, there are only about 10 men. In the regiment, there are only about 200. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Hello, this is Matt from the Explorers Podcast. I want to invite you to join me on the voyages and journeys of the most famous explorers in the history of the world. At the Explorers Podcast, we plunge into jungles and deserts, across mighty oceans and frigid ice caps, over and to the top of great mountains, and even into outer space. These are the thrilling and captivating stories of Magellan, Shackleton, Lewis and Clark, and so many other famous and not-so-famous adventurers from throughout history. So come give us a listen. We'd love to have you. Go to explorerspodcast.com or just look us up on your podcast app. That's the Explorers Podcast. Even with the difficulties in recruitment that were mounting through the years, conscription was never implemented. Uh, this was due almost entirely to concerns about the effect that conscription would have on the local population. Even just rumors of possible conscription led to civil disobedience in several provinces. It is somewhat fortunate, at least for the leaders, both Indian and British, in India, that the war ended when it did. It saved them from having to more seriously consider conscription, which may have been required to sustain the Indian army in 1919. While the recruiting problems would mount as the war progressed, at the very beginning of the war, the Indian forces would make a quick and significant contribution to the Entente war effort. By November 1914, after some of the early fighting, fully one-third of all of the British troops on the Western Front originated from India. All of these troops were not necessarily Indian in ethnicity, because there was a good number of British troops in India at the start of the war, but all of the units had been based in India before the war, and a majority of the soldiers within them were Indian in descent. By November, many of these troops had already participated in several battles, including the fighting at La Bassie, at Messines, at Armentieres, and at Ypres. 
During this fighting, they would perform admirably, with General Wilcox, who would serve with the Indian Corps throughout this time on the Western Front, would, he would write in his book with the Indians in France that, quote, facing a heavy fire of machine guns and howitzers, the 47th Sikhs uh, received their baptism of fire, pushed forward covering themselves with honor, and not halting a moment until they were into, and in the case of one platoon, beyond the furthest trench occupied by the Lincolns. With this, no further advance was possible with the limited numbers at their disposal. End quote. This would be the time period when the first set of myths about Indian troops would originate. One of these myths was that the Indian troops did not do well in the cold weather of Europe. I believe I probably even repeated this uh, back in the early episodes of the podcast, one of the many problems with those episodes. There were some problems among the Indian troops due to the onset of winter, but that was rooted in the fact that they had shipped out from India in summer uniforms, and when the weather got colder, they were not provided with suitable garments. In the version of the story that is sometimes told, the Indians were just not used to cold weather, and when it got cold, they could not function, which is simply not true. At the simplest level, many of the Indian troops were recruited from areas like the Himalayan foothills or the northwest frontier, and were no strangers to cold weather. By the end of the year, the Indian units were exhausted. They had suffered thousands of casualties and had been almost in almost constant action since the start of the war. Due to their condition, they were pulled off the line for a few weeks when possible, and this allowed the troops to rest and for more replacements to arrive in Europe. This would prove to be an important period, because the Indian troops would be essential to the British offensives of 1915. At Neuve Chapelle, Aubert Ridge, and Luz, they would play an important role in the British attacks. Even with these contributions, as the year wore on, the decision was made to start rotating the Indian units off the Western Front, and to send them to other theaters. This was not due to poor performance. In fact, the Indian Corps was one of, if not the, most experienced unit in the British Army by mid-1915. Instead, the decision was mostly due to the difficult and very challenging situation of keeping the Indian units supplied and reinforced while fighting in Western Europe. During this period, supplies and men had to be shipped all the way from India, no small feat, and it was proving beyond the capabilities of those involved to keep enough men coming to Europe to keep the units at a reasonable strength. For example, after the attacks at Neuve Chapelle, many of the Indian units were down to just 39% of their original strength, and British troops had to be added to their ranks to bring the units back up to fighting strength, which is the exact opposite of what the British hoped for when they brought in reinforcements from India. Though the decision was made to move the units to theaters closer to their home, specifically Africa and the Middle East. This would be done by the end of the year, with the place of the Indian troops taken by the new British formations that were arriving at the front in good numbers by the beginning of 1916. During their time in Europe, the Indian troops had been treated pretty well, all things considered. In France, many soldiers would report that the French families that they were billeted with from time to time treated them very well. One would write that, quote, the people here treat us better than mothers treat their children in India. Others would just find themselves in a kind of culture shock, with one writing home that, quote, the people here keep horses, cows, pigs, and dogs. Their cows give more milk than ours. Their horses are used where we use cows, and their dogs where we use horses. The horses are as big as camels and have hands and feet the size of camels. I myself have seen dogs pulling carts. This is true. End quote. There was also thought given by the British leaders to make sure that there was good medical care provided for the wounded Indians, and that the care that was provided obeyed all religious provisions that might be applicable. 
Obeying these religious requirements was believed to be very important because the British wanted to make sure that they did not create any religious tension with India, a country that was primarily Muslim. Just to be clear though, while the Indian soldiers may have been treated pretty well, they were not treated like white soldiers. When in hospital, they were confined to hospital grounds, which was surrounded by barbed wire and military police, due to concerns that Indian men would have relations with British women, a situation that had to be avoided at all costs. Before we move away from the Western Front, we need to discuss one further myth that has developed over the years, and this myth was around the prevalence of self-inflicted wounds by Indian troops on the Western Front. The general idea with this one is that large numbers of Indian troops were so shocked by the fighting on the Western Front that they resorted to self-inflicted wounds to get away from the fighting. This certainly happened, with several incidents being officially reported and confirmed. However, the number that did occur was not completely outside the norm. All units of the British Army, and all the other armies as well, had some small percentage of men who were guilty of these self-inflicted wounds. These were often soldiers that were just arriving at the front, and being Indian did not mean that they were more likely than anybody else to commit the act. I'll close out our Western Front section here by just, here's a quote from Lord Corzon in 1917, who would summarize the importance of the Indian troops on the Western Front by saying, quote, The Indian Expeditionary Force arrived in the nick of time, that it helped to save the cause both of the Allies and of civilization after the sanguinary tumult of the early weeks of the war has been openly acknowledged by the highest in land from the sovereign downwards, end quote. Outside of the Western Front, the Indian Army would also be involved in the ill-fated invasion of German East Africa. During this invasion, they would attempt to take the city of Tanga with an amphibious assault. It would end up being one of the most poorly managed military campaigns that I personally have ever read about. The troops were loaded onto their ships in India, and then they were sailed to Africa, and then they had to sit on their boats for an extra day, and then they were landed straight away into a mangrove swamp. Many of the troops were seasick by this time, and they had... They had been stuck on the ships for several extra days. They were also landing in the morning after a long night of no sleep. And the final nail in the coffin was that the German colonial troops were 100% aware that they were on their way. This was not a typical case of good intelligence by the Germans, but instead due to the actions of the British commander, who felt the need to notify them 24 hours before the invasion that the landing would occur the next day. With all of these problems, it should be no surprise that the invasion did not go well, and eventually they would be put back on their ships. Colonel Meinertshagen, an officer of the British Army, would later say that the Battle of Tanga, quote, is the best example I know of, of how a battle should not be fought, not only in the events leading up to the fight, but also in its conduct from the general officer commanding to the rank and file who suffered. The area of greatest contribution by the Indian Army would be in the Middle East. This included experience in the theater at Gallipoli. They would arrive at Gallipoli on, on April 30th as part of the first major set of reinforcements, and in total 16,000 Indian troops would fight on the peninsula, and while they were in the fighting, they would earn a solid reputation among the other soldiers, including the Anzacs. However, they could do little to save the Gallipoli campaign from its failure, and just as the Gallipoli campaign was wrapping up, an even greater disaster was developing in a little village on the Tigris named Kut Alamara. In late 1914, the British had invaded Mesopotamia with the seizure of Basra on the Persian Gulf. The Mesopotamian theater would be conducted and manned by troops from India, and the India office would be in almost total control of the endeavor, at least until 1916. 
During this time, they would try to advance up the Tigris and Euphrates rivers in the hopes of capturing Baghdad. Much like the logistical mistakes that they made in Africa, the advance up the rivers in Mesopotamia would be a comedy of errors. There were not enough transport for supplies, so as the men advanced up the rivers, it became harder and harder to push supplies forward to the units in the vanguard. This came down to a simple lack of river transport craft, and an overall lack of patience, which would have allowed for proper supply dumps to be created. This meant that by the time that the troops reached the outskirts of Baghdad, they were at the end of their tether, and they were defeated. With the defeat, they were forced to retreat, a retreat that would not stop until they reached Kut Alamara. A siege would begin in the city and would continue for 144 days. While supplies dwindled and all relief efforts failed, critical to this stage and the failed relief efforts were the same supply issues that had prevented the advance from being successful in the first place, but when the garrison surrendered and was taken into custody, the soldiers were forced to march 600 miles through the desert to Aleppo in modern-day Syria. Those that arrived were nearly starved, and for the next few years they would be fed just enough to make sure that they could continue the manual labor that was demanded of them. Such a colossal failure, with it being called the greatest British defeat in a hundred years, led to an investigation, and it would be done by the Mesopotamia Inquiry Commission. Their goal was to determine why the campaign had been such an abject failure. The results would be published in the Mesopotamia Report. This report, presented to Parliament on June 27, 1917, acted as an indictment not of the Indian troops, but instead their political and military leadership. The report would blame the system of military administration for the failure, and the result would be the government in London mandating a shakeup of the military leadership of the Indian Army in the Middle East, and the demand that all future efforts would be quarterbacked from London. Overall, this was a good development for the Indian troops at the front, with later campaigns putting far more focus on medical care and ensuring supplies were reaching the front in sufficient quantities. While the fighting troops from India would occupy most of the histories told of the war, India made two other important contributions to the conflict. The first was the laborers that were sent to all theaters. In total, there would be over a million of these men. They would do everything that could be done with manual labor, quite literally digging ditches and trenches. But there were also skilled workers, like bakers and carpenters and tailors and all the various things that armies need to be able to continue to fight a war. Another important contribution from India was economic. In terms of direct monetary contribution, India would give 146 million pounds, with a further 75 million raised in war bonds. Along with that money, there were also large quantities of cotton, wool, and jute exported both as raw materials, as well as woven into cloth and fabric, which was critical to keeping the armies in Europe properly clothed. As the overall exertion by India for the war effort grew and grew, Calls for reform within India also grew. The thing at the top of these desires was self-government, and Indian politicians would become louder and louder in their calls for this self-government during the conflict. There was little support, at least initially, for self-government either in London or Delhi, with both governments wanting to just focus on winning the war. However, by 1917, some sort of statement was going to have to be made. With tensions rising in India, and with so many troops already being removed from the country, far too many, according to the Viceroy of India, who started raising concerns about the lack of non-Indian troops in India all the way back in 1915. But in August 1917, an official statement would finally be made. This would be called the Montague Declaration, because it was made by Edwin Montague, a Secretary of State for India. 
The core of the declaration were some political reforms that would be made in India after the war. This would involve a slow transition to self-government to be started when the war was over. It did not satisfy many Indian nationalists, but was important in keeping moderates on side until the conflict was over. The first reforms would happen in the Government of India Act in December 1919, but it would be far less than many Indians had hoped for. So that's sort of the story of India during the war. I, I feel kind of confident in saying that the British Empire would not have been on the winning side of the war without the Indian involvement, or if they had, it would have taken much longer. Hi, 